Let's start the show by talking about my sponsor, Paloma Verde, and their new website, PalomaVerdeCBD.com. Head over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com and check them out for all of your CBD needs. They've got the gummies, tinctures, the salves. So if you're needing anything to maybe chill you out, something to help you get mellowed out, something for your joint pain and stiffness, go over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com and give them a check out. Carlos and Vanessa are awesome people. They run a great company. And if you enter the promo code FACTS at checkout, you'll get 25% off your order. Plus, any order over $75, you get free shipping. So, I don't know what you're waiting for. Head over to PalomaVerdeCBD.com and check them out. Let's start the show. This episode will be completely taken out of context. Welcome to the Fact Check This podcast. Fact check this podcast episode. Not sure. We'll see where this falls in the in the realm of the episodes. A funny thing that uh, has come about since the post that you responded to is I had a whole bunch of people that gave me topics that they wanted me to talk about, and also volunteering to be interviewed to talk about specific topics that they are either knowledgeable about or just wanted to talk about with somebody. So. So now I'm like in this uh, interesting realm where I'm putting together a bunch of content ahead of time instead of recording an episode the night before I release it. So, so we'll see what episode this number ends up uh, this ends up being. But today I've got Dr. Eric Larson on. Eric does his own show, The Paradox, which I get to do a little bit of work for as well. Uh, Eric, would you like to introduce yourself, and then we'll kind of take it from there. Sure. My name's uh, Dr. Eric Larson. I'm a clinical assistant professor at, in anesthesiology at Michigan State University. I'm the host, as you mentioned, of the Paradox Podcast, where I look at the U.S. medical system with another doctor, usually. That's the Paradox, and it's actually spelled P-A-R-A-D-O-C-S, and you can find it at theparadox.com. And uh, basically look at the U.S. medical system. So all the things that are wrong with it, all the things that are right with it, I like to think of my show as generally a way for physicians to better understand why medicine doesn't work the way they want it to, or why they're frustrated, and for patients to understand why they're not getting the care that they expect. And so I think oftentimes it's the same thing. It's that you just have to present the information differently, right? You know, physicians have a deeper understanding of the frustrations and the things that are impediments to providing the care they want. And for patients, they have to learn about why this thing's not happening, right? I mean, that's, there's a, there's an information gap as there is in with any industry. And so I try and bridge those together to allow, allow both my listeners who are physicians and non-physicians understand what's going on better. And we have just a wide variety of issues from obviously COVID recently, but we talk about the third party payer system, ethics, uh, privacy, information gathering, payment methods, all those sorts of things. And we talk about all the problems of healthcare and, uh, and and the neat thing is really a lot of people who are disruptive who are actually solving these problems within the framework that we have in this country, which is, um, you know, designed many ways to not allow you to be disruptive and to actually innovate, but people still find ways to do it, which is what's really cool. And has in general, since I launched my show in 2018, maybe much more optimistic about medicine than I was initially. And that's been the greatest thing about it. I think actually we're in a much better place than people think we are uh, as far as medicine in the United States. I've definitely learned a lot from getting to work with you and, and working on your show and putting together clips and, and listening to the, the interviews and everything. Um, but when you would talk to your doctor, uh, 
Dr. Amon. Yes. Uh-huh. That was that was really fascinating for me to a lot of the things that go into why uh, like hospitals and the, the doctor's offices are inefficient and like some of the stuff that they go through that that she talks about, like specifically uh, kind of being able to work around because of the way she does things like that was that was really that was really cool to to hear that because like that's that's not stuff that if you're not in the field and and like for me I might get in physical annually and unless I'm just like borderline death uh, I will not go to the doctor or to the hospital or anything like ever uh, and right. so so I I definitely don't you know I don't know anything about that stuff because I actively try to avoid the medical field entirely. Uh, so, so on that topic, uh, I wanted to I wanted to kind of pick your brain on that. What are some of the uh, kind of the failures that you see of the current system with the way it's comprised and and some of the the things that doctors have to go through with a lot of the regulatory stuff and things that make things that make it inefficient that maybe the average uh, patient just doesn't even realize is a, uh, a hoop that you're having to jump through on a daily basis. Well, let me start with a story. And I think this one is, this sort of will be a good launching ground for further discussion. A year and a half ago, I was on call. Uh, it was, so I, I take home call oftentimes and my pager goes off middle of the night. <clears throat> I had been up all day doing anesthesia and just in the OR all day. So I made it home, was in bed in the middle of the night, my pager goes off and I get up and I've been sick all day too, by the way. I'd like bad, really bad cold. This is back when you actually could have a cold and not, you know, worry about it, right? So you actually go to work, you have a cold and you just, because, you know, someone's got to be in the hospital and doing stuff. So I get up and I was trying to answer my pager. I was trying to press the buttons to see what my pager, I couldn't focus. And next thing I know, I'm laying on the floor and there's blood on the floor. And so I passed out. So clearly I was like dehydrated and sick from the cold. So anyway, I go in. I eventually get things sutured up and stuff. And my doctor, as you mentioned, Dr. Mott, who's a direct primary care doc, which we can talk about a little bit, but uh, she said, you know, it's probably a good idea for you to have a Holter monitor uh, just to look at it. It's basically something you put on. It checks your heart rhythm. And you want to make sure you have an explanation for why you pass out. I mean, the obvious explanation is I was sick and dehydrated and it was middle of the night. I woke up kind of all of a sudden, jumped out of bed or whatever and fell over. <laughs> I mean, it seems really stupid uh, when you look back at it, but uh, so I went to, and she said, well, I'm a direct primary care doc. Generally, all my patients pay cash for their tests. And she said, I have this Holter monitor. You put it on. Someone will look at your EKG for the next six to seven days. And it's a set fee, which is $250. But, you know, I know you have insurance. So do you want me just to submit it to insurance? She said, I don't normally do that, but, you know, we can do that. And so I said, well, you know, we had deductibles probably met, which clearly was because of uh, obviously what happened at going to the ER for my, you know, head bleeding and stuff. So, well, I, why don't we just do that? I think that makes sense. We'll just put insurance. I have my test set six days, totally normal, whatever. I walk around this, you know, EKG leads it on and I don't think anything of it. Three, four months later, I get a bill for $5,000 from the company. I'm like, holy cow. So I call my, I call Dr. Madison. I've got paid, charged $5,000. You know, this is, a, again, this is something she was going to offer and the company 
charges $250 for if you pay cash. I said, I just got a bill for $5,000. And she said, whoa, I can't believe it. So she calls the company right away. And they said, oh, don't worry about it. That's just the first bill. That's just the insurance company always rejects it the first time. We'll just keep submitting. Don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. I'm like, all right, right? So I don't pay the bill. Then I, the, now it's 13 months later total. So we've gone into the next calendar year. This is actually now like 2019 or something. 20, yeah, 19 or 20. And I get a bill or I get a, the explanation of benefits from my insurance company. Now, mind you, the way insurance works is you pay your deductible. And then generally, once you hit, hit your deductible, you pay a certain amount, a percentage of whatever the fee is after that. So, you know, if your bill is $1,000 and you say, well, you made your deductible, you only pay 20%. Now I pay $200. And so that's how my insurance works. So, that, well, actually, this is a really bad deal because even if I hit my deductible and they say, and it's a $5,000 bill, I will still be in the hook for $1,000. So I'll still pay four times what I originally would have paid cash. I paid just right on the spot, right when we first got the bill. So eventually get the explanation of benefits from the, the insurance company said, hey, just so you know, we saved you $250. The final bill is only $47.50. And you're going to be responsible for it. You know, you'll be on the hook for the 20% of it. So it's almost like $1,000, like $900. And so I get a call, my call Dr. Mott. I'm like, you know what I do? She calls the company and they say, oh, you know, we usually can settle for like, you know, $250, <laughs> right? I never got a bill from the company. They didn't bother, right? Because for them, it's not even worth the hassle of trying to go after someone for, you know, a couple hundred bucks. They got their, they got their you know, two pounds of flesh or something with, from the insurance company for $4,000. But I think this, this whole example exemplifies the problem with the system, right? You have, and, and the whole discussion we've been having what is the key? The key is that I was really never part of it. There was an insurance company that was between me and the person providing the service, which was you know the Holter Monitor company, and they were just negotiating with each other for how much it should, how much is going to cost. And I was sort of like an afterthought. I I happened to be involved in the sense that I fell over and I had to get the test, but I wasn't the one who was in the negotiations. I didn't work out any sort of process as far as payment, the scheduling, any of that stuff. I had nothing to do with it. And really, your doctor had nothing to do with it. Like at that point, the patient, the doctor, like y'all, they're just afterthoughts in a basically a giant uh, Ponzi scheme. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's exactly what you'd expect a system to to work out, where you don't have the, the consumer actually involved in the process, right? That I mean, it's actually exactly what you'd expect because the consumer is actually the insurance company. It's not the not the patient, but. What we think of in our mind is like, well, I'm the one getting healthcare, so I'm the one who's sort of paying for things. And ultimately, I guess I end up paying the bill at the end, right? In the second case, I didn't, they didn't bother. But um, it, it is a great encapsulation of what is wrong with the healthcare system. Now, obviously, for me, well, it's pretty small. I mean, but there are people all the time having huge hospital bills, imaging tests, and things like that. Mine was relatively minor, but it just shows you, I mean, the inflation, what is that inflation per It's like 2,000% inflation. Right from two fifty to five thousand dollars, that's crazy. I mean, there's no industry that's like that. I mean, you could argue all you want about education, but I mean, even that price tag is nothing like with healthcare. They run up the bill and stuff. And so it is a it is a great example of the problem with the third party payer system, in that we have a system where I'm disconnected from the the um, from the person who's actually providing the service, and so. If you're even in a system where you don't have payment, let's say you go to someplace like 
the UK where it's the national healthcare system, well, there it's totally detached, right? Then you have no control as a consumer at all. There's no constraints. And so you're going to have decisions that are made completely with, uh, that are detached from price. And so you're going to have more problems with scarcity and, or issues of getting access to things because there's no actual, you know, <laughs> you're not important at all in that process. And that's, you see, you see that in the UK, you see people have all gigantic wait times for problems. Uh, you see that in Canada, you see other places. And so we have barely a market system in this country is anyone who's been involved, you know, got, getting healthcare. There are ways to get it. And so that's what we talk about our show. But uh, my doctor, for instance, is someone who is not working with the insurance system. So I pay her a, a fee every month, like hundred bucks, which is pretty cheap for 24 seven access to a doc. I can see her as many times as I want during a year. Fortunately, if anything, I see her, it's sort of like, Hey, I need some, a refill my medication or something like that. That's pretty much it. I don't really, I'm, I'm an easy patient for her, but she has people with lots of chronic disease that she can see all the time. And she's not busy in the sense that she has, sees maybe three, four, five, maybe six people a day, you know? And so she has plenty of time with them. Um, and she provides all this cash process service. And you can see how much the system, the, uh, the middlemen or whatever you want to call them, how much they sort of scrape out of the system. And you see the inefficiency of the insurance companies too. And I mean, every part of this process, it's, it's just, it just shows you all the problems within the system. And, and that's why there are people who are, you know, why Americans are upset and they're looking for solutions, which is I think perfectly reasonable because clearly what we have is not working very well. So, and with that in mind, one of the one of the big solutions that, that a lot of people seem to to want or to think is uh, is going to be beneficial or would work is the you know the single payer, the Obamacare, you know, blown up to uh, astronomical levels where the government runs all of this and everything has to be effectively run through government insurance and allow the government to run the healthcare system. What are your thoughts on that? And how do you see that? I mean, obviously with the current system we have, which is kind of that light, it's not really great. So how, how would that be a, what's the logic behind that being a solution? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's exactly what you get. You get more of the same, right? And uh, and fundamentally, if you have again, you're just detaching more of the the person, the end user, from the person who's providing the service, and so that's going to cause a huge problem. And you have all these distortions. And I, you know, a lot of things in medicine in the United States that we complain about, let's say drug prices, we in many ways subsidize the rest of the world, both in research and uh, in medication prices. And so, if we were to suddenly say, well, you know all the drugs are, we're going to cap the price of pharmaceuticals. Well, the pharmaceutical companies can't make up for that money anywhere else in the world. We are absolutely the biggest market. We're the richest market. And so they can get the premium from us and then pass on the savings to the rest of the world. And so that's what we do in this country, right? I mean, when it comes to drug development, for the most part, uh, it may be get tested elsewhere, but a lot of it is done in the United States because it is so profitable. If we were to remove that, uh, the rest of the world would lose access to drugs, right? I mean, they would... They would suffer the most, which I don't know, maybe you think that's okay. But, you know, right now we, I mean, we are, our country really subsidized. And so 
the healthcare that you think you would get, you wouldn't get, I guess is the first thing to, to recognize that you think, oh, we'll have all these, we'll still have all these drugs, but now it won't cost me as much. It'll be free or whatever. Uh, it won't, you'll still pay for it through taxes. And, and then you, and then now what became, what initially were medical decisions or financial decisions, you're like, well, I have to decide if I want to get this sort of thing, um, this test done, or I want to have the surgery will now become political decisions. And so what, what you're, how important you think it is to get knee replaced will not be dependent on whether you think you need your knee replaced or whether you've got bad arthritis or that you can't work as much. It'll be, who do you know? Where do you live? Um, you know, what's the budget for whatever state you're in? Or, you know, maybe it's the federal government. I don't know. I mean, it depends how we sort of structure it. You look at Canada and Canada is a very provincial system. And so the healthcare is dramatically different from one province to another in Canada. And so it's not like some it's certainly not a panacea. People wait a long time. And that's why they go to the United States for a lot of their care. Because if you've got money and access you want, and you want something done, you go to the United States. You don't want to wait three years to get an MRI to see if you blew out your ACL playing soccer, you know, when you're 27. Nothing's free. Everything costs money. Our system is unfortunately this quasi sort of governmental third-party payer system. And so we don't have national, a national healthcare system. But we kind of do in the sense that probably, I think, I don't know the exact numbers now, but I think like over 50% of our healthcare is provided either through Medicare or Medicaid. And so that is a government paid system and that's why it's so expensive. And so since we have that system and then it's layered on with third party payer system through general regular insurance, it creates distortions in the pricing and models and, and causes all the problems we see, right? I mean, that's the expense and you can see how expensive everything is when you have no checks on price and you don't have actual people shopping around for, for pricing either as say doctors or hospitals or you have patients, right? No one cares how much things cost. They do, but they don't. And so when you have that system, you have everybody think there's something's free, right? And they treat it like it's free and that causes huge problems. And, that, and, that, and you can only imagine if that was the only way to get care then you're going to have it be even worse. One something that that I kind of think of uh, with both of us being uh, more libertarian leaning, you know, roads are always a big uh, big thing. Like if you look at the road departments and the way that they subcontract out most of the road work that's done, their the budgets that they run for that stuff are astronomical, and the roads are still terrible. So, how would if you you know? If you equate that over to the medical profession, how is the government running that going to be any different? Like the the rates are just going to go up. We may not see it on the front end of actually receiving the bill, but you're getting the bill on the back end with the taxes you're going to pay, uh, and then just the level of service that you're going to get. I mean, the same with the roads. You know, the roads around here are terrible, and they are under construction 100% of the time. The, the road right in front of our house, literally every year since I've lived here, they have combed off half the road and done work every summer. And it is still terrible. It, there's Nothing gets better. It's just they, they dig new holes and put more asphalt in it, but they never actually fix anything. Uh, and how is the, you know, how would the government run the healthcare system any better than what they run the road department? <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm, I, I think, you know, it's real important too. Is people always say, well, there's asymmetric knowledge with medicine. And there's absolutely is. I mean, I know what you need for, you know, your medical care. And you have 
no knowledge or a little bit of knowledge of how things work because, you know, it's highly specialized practice, much like, you know, law or, you know, engineering, architecture, I mean, all kinds of things like a good examples of that. So people often say, well, um, uh, it'd be better if we had all this, if, if we consolidate this, get rid of all the, get rid of all the middlemen, all the hospital administrators, all the people taking profit out of the system and just have all that money going into actually treating patients. Uh, there's some truth to that, except we know that when you look at in other examples, like you mentioned the roads, but I think the other things you can look at, like say food, right? Everyone always says, well, healthcare is the most important sort of you know resource. Well, I'd say it's not. I mean, I can be really healthy, but if I don't eat food, I die, right? So I need, I rely on the the entire, the gigantic food network we have in this country, farmers, processors, distributors, and grocery stores, you know, or in restaurants, whatever, I guess. We would, no one in their right mind thinks that we should nationalize that. I mean, I suppose there's some people, but for the most part, no one thinks that that would be a good way to deliver, to deliver our food and our, you know, you, that you go to one place and just pick up your food. We've seen what that ha what happens in Russia. There's no reason, you know, in the Soviet Union, we saw what happened to the bread lines, right? There is, there's no reason to think it would be any different in this country. The problem we have in this country really is that we have pretty much in many ways, the system that people think they want, which is, which is a, uh, a nationalized system. It's not nationalized. There is enough market in it that it provides services because we're so rich, we can afford it. So you don't have to wait forever, but it would not be any cheaper. It would just be far more frustrating and it would be more probably disadvantageous to people who are poor than it is even now, which I know people find hard to believe. But uh, yes, if you don't have a lot of money, it's hard to get services, but it'd be even harder if you don't have any political capital to get services too, right? I mean, I, I don't think anyone thinks in their right mind that if you're the president, that you're going to have trouble getting access to care, or if you're a senator or a governor or something like that, right? So that so you you immediately know that those people would be taken care of. I mean, it's like the Politburo, right? I mean, it's like in Soviet Union, it wouldn't be any different. So the the socialized aspect of the medical care is not efficient, and we've seen ways now that people are actually delivering care efficiently, ones that the patients love, that's inexpensive. And you get way better care. I mean, the direct primary care is a great example. I pay 100 bucks a month. I have 24-7 access to my physician. She loves it because she sees patients on her time the way she wants. She doesn't have to do all the billing, all the third-party nonsense. She's not spending a lot of time doing administrative work. She's caring for patients, right? It's better. It, we all win, and it's way cheaper. So, I mean, there are people, there are ways, there are solutions around this that don't involve a gigantic piece of legislation. And something that she had talked about in y'all's interview was the ability to waive certain fees and to help people who do need financial help. Whereas like if it's on a, a fully socialized system, it, it's, it becomes even less of a have and have not and more of a like a class caste system. Like if you do not, like you were saying, if you don't have the political clout, if you are not the right status, then you're going to get pushed to the bottom of the barrel. Uh, you know, if the bottom of the barrel ever comes and with, with the way, you know, that she talked about doing it, she has that flexibility to help people who actually need help and, and not have to, um, you know, ignore certain people or prioritize based on how much they can pay or where they stand as far as, uh, you know, uh, classifying their social rank, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's no question that that's a, that 
if you look at the way people pay right now, uh, if you if you have money, you get services. If you don't, and and I think if you look at Medicare, uh, it's not free right now. Like people always think Medicare is free, and it's not. There's if if you think that, I like I'd suggest you watch MSNBC or or Fox News in the afternoon because who's watching television? Old people. And what are all the commercials? Get yourself a medical Medicare insurance here for your your medications or whatever. It's because it's not free. I mean, if we actually made it free, it'd be even more expensive. Uh, so I, you know, I I think the nice thing is, is again, there are people who are solving this problem. There are ways around it, and it's it's beautiful that there are all these people who have come up with solutions with their with the system. But you can only imagine how much worse it'd be if if, if they didn't have those if those people weren't there finding those solutions and, and treating people. So I, you know, I, again, like I said, I'm much more encouraged about healthcare. I was very discouraged when I started my show, but I'm much more encouraged because I've seen people who have solved these problems. You know, I, when it comes to direct primary care, there are more and more of these practices all over the country. They're saying, I'm not going to do insurance. I'm going to see less patients, but I'm going to see them better. And I'm going to, you know, have better control of what they're doing. Uh, there are people with independent surgery centers, emergency rooms I've talked to, people doing some telehealth stuff. I mean, there are people solving this problem with access. And right now, if you want to say treat some, if you take insurance, you take Medicare, you can't provide free care because Medicare says you have to provide the same rate, whatever to everybody. So you can't even take care of the poor under you know Medicare if someone can't pay their bill. I mean, you can just, I guess, let them not pay at all, but you can't, you can't, you can't do that without them being harassed to pay, right? That's the that's the problem right now. And like, if you're in a healthcare system, they're absolutely going to go after people to get money from them. And so, uh, Medicare won't allow you to say, "I'm just going to waive the fees for you," because that's illegal for Medicare. They say you've got to charge the same to everybody. If you're charging someone zero, everybody's got to get zero. Well, you can't run a business and pay staff and you know buy supplies for zero. <laughs> so I mean, right? And so. Uh, we it, just imagine that system if that was how everything worked. Like, you know, you say, they, your friends might say, well, everybody's going to get charged zero. Yeah, but you can't, but you're going to have a really restriction in, in how many people you can serve and if everyone's coming for zero, right? And so you're not going to, so you're going to prioritize people who are, you know, have connections and whatever. I mean, that's, or you're going to have gigantic lines if you're going to, and that you can't serve nearly as many people as you want. Because I guarantee you, you're not going to get paid enough to provide enough services and have enough people working and taking care of things. Just go to the VA and talk to any veteran. They generally would rather not get their care at the VA. They'd rather get their care at a private hospital, almost always. And it's not because people at the VA are bad people. It's just the system is not designed to, to take care of people very efficiently or, or quickly. Right. So you had actually, you had mentioned something that I wanted to dig a little bit more into. Uh, my mother was in education for 20 years or something. She was a teacher. And one of the things that I've seen in studying and looking at uh, the U.S. educational system is the amount of time and money that gets invested into administrative stuff and doesn't actually go towards students and teachers and uh, addressing the actual what education is supposed to be about. And you had mentioned uh, the administrative side of that. So, so how does that work with the, the medical field? Is it, is it a similar thing as the education with uh, a lot of overhead tied up in administrative 
fees and administrative uh, employees and stuff like that? Or like, how does it work? Is the is there a lot of that kind of stuff that goes on in in medicine? Yeah, we have some bureaucracy. <laughs> we, have, we have a lot of it. In fact, we have uh, we've never layers of problems when it comes to um, when it comes to th- middlemen, administrators, bean counter, you know, those sorts of people that we. Any business has to have people who provide, who organize and coordinate your services, right? It, whether you're, let's just say you're a hospital or a health system or something like that. You have to have people who know where people sh- should be. You got to hire the people to, you know, take out the trash and clean the rooms and the nurses and, then, and you know, get the supplies. I mean, there's a, it's a very complicated process. There's no question about that. Make sure you have, you know, operating facilities and they're up to date. You got a parking lot. You've got pharmaceuticals and all, all that stuff. So you have to have administrators. The problem, of course, comes in the fact that these administrators, um, there are a lot of things they're they're doing. Well, you're doing things in order to get paid, right? Because if you don't get paid, then it's not worth doing. And so you're trying to capture as much charge as you can. And so that requires people to be in charge of making sure you're getting money. Well, there are all sorts of regulations that are in place that you have to do certain things in order to get paid, quality metrics and things like that. And so you have more and more people who are involved in things that I would say are non-clinical in the sense that you're, you're capturing demographic data. So I want to make sure I, I know what sort of your race, ethnicity, um, you know, all those sorts of things, where you're from. Those things I have to make sure I capture, put in a database and report to the government. I have to make sure that I do surveys to, make, to verify that you're actually, uh, you know, what your, what your pain levels are. And, and then I have to figure out things like, oh, how often do we get urinary tract infections with in, indwelling urinary catheters? And I report that to the government so, because that affects my pay level. So if I have a lot of those infections, I get paid less per person than I would otherwise. So there are all these different metrics and things that are put in place. Oftentimes, I think good intentions like, hey, we, don't, we want less urinary tract infections. Well, that sounds like a good plan. But someone has to collect the data, someone has to report it, and they're always, and they're just more and more people who are sort of collecting this stuff that fundamentally doesn't really change your care. It just increases the cost. Overall, this increase in cost, I think, is relatively small. <laughs> and I think the, the, big, the big problems in medicine are, I mean, clearly that's a problem within the health system itself, that there are these people who are forced to do things they don't want to do. Uh, their business model is crazy. They don't actually ever design their business to actually know how much things cost, uh, which is crazy if you're like running a business. And, you know, if I said, well, how much does it cost you an appendectomy? appendectomy they'll be like, eh, not sure. But I mean, we can kind of tell you some things, but we don't know the whole cost of everything, uh, which is like crazy to think that that's even possible. But it's a gigantic problem for health hospitals to figure out how much things cost. But the bigger problem is all the other people in the healthcare process that are involved with insurance and third-party payment system, right? So we have a distortion when it comes to the consumer doesn't walk in as the consumer. They just walk in as a patient. They're a widget. And their encounter uh, is not dependent, doesn't actually, they're not actually asked with their opinion on what they want to pay for, uh, how they want to you know, do things. They're they're sort of long for the ride, right? And And because of that, we now have insurance companies that negotiate with the hospitals and who are their, who are their consumers? It's the employers, right? So they reply, they respond to the employers. So, and the employers, they just want to pay as little as they can. 
but they also have no control over the system because most of these insurance companies are gigantic and they actually are owned by the hospitals oftentimes. So what happens? So they, they, the insurance companies bundle a bunch of services, pharmaceuticals, radiology, physician services, hospital, um, indemnity, all kinds of things in one, in a package, sell it to the employer. And they will oftentimes say, you know, if we'll see what your utilization is, we'll give you a rebate based on our charges. So um, we'll, we'll save you 20%, you know, or something like that. So you get this bill and you'll get a bill as a patient that says, you know, we reduce your price by 25%, right? Well, my insurance company reduced my price by like 5% on my test, but I still paid almost 2000% more than I would have had. I just walked in and paid cash, right? In my example. So employers have seen the same thing, right? They're seeing some of the insurance company says, well, we saved you 50%. So just give us 10% of that back. Well, immediately you can look at that and say, well, for an insurance company, it makes way more sense for the bill to be $100,000 than $10,000. Because if it's $100,000 and they cut off 50%, it's now $50,000, but they're getting 5%, they're getting 10% of that back. So they get $5,000 back, right? So if the bill's, a, so they're getting 5,000 bucks. If the bill is $10,000 and they got the same savings, they get what, 500 bucks, right? So you, you can see the incentive for the insurance companies is strangely not to actually keep hospital prices low. You also have in pharmacy benefit managers, which are the largest, the biggest lobbyists in the, in the country. And I've done a number of shows in this and it, they're called PBMs. Um, CVS is one, Healthcare, Healthmark. Um, and uh, I can't think of the other one, starts with the E, it's the biggest one. But anyway, they... Um, they actually do the same thing. So they could go to a pharmaceutical company and say, hey, we want to put your drug on farm formulary. So every farm, every physician benefit manager will provide a list of formulary of medications they provide that discounts to to hospitals. So hospitals, in order to have a you know a good supply chain and to make it easy for them to get access to pharmaceuticals, will contract with a, ph a pharmacy benefit manager. There are like two or three of them that control 85% of the market in the country. And so they'll have, you know, Tylenol and whatever, all the, you know, all the medications you can think of. They, those, those medication, the, the pharmacy benefit manager will go to the pharmaceutical and say, hey, we'd love to have your drug on formulary so that, you know, we'll sell it and make sure it's, they have the hospital's access to it and patients do. But <clears throat> we want you to provide us a discount of 50% because, you know, your list price is whatever, $1,000 for this medicine. Um, so you need to give us a discount of 50%. So I said, okay, we said to you for $500. Well, I'm going to let you guess at how much they, that pharmacy benefit manager charges the hospital for that medication. If you guess anything less than $1,000, you're totally wrong. Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's right? just, that's basic business. Yeah, that's basic business. Basic business. <laughs> right. So, and so, you're at, so then you at the natural question is ask yourself, well, why would anyone, why would a pharmaceutical manager, manufacturer agree to this, right? It doesn't make any sense. Why would they? Well, they do because if they don't get into that one of those three pharmacy benefit managers, their drugs don't have any market penetration. So they are forced to, so it causes strange distortions, right? So pharmacy, medi medications are super expensive, way more than they should be. Also, that pharmacy benefit manager, just like I said, the insurance company is incentivized to have expensive hospital care, right? The pharmacy benefit manager, guess what? They're, they don't really want to use generics. They want you to use the brand name. They want you to use the expensive medications because their rebate that they get, that they will give back to the consumers, which would be, you'd, you'd expect that. I mean, their argument is that we'll take the $500 and we'll provide that savings to the hospital or the people who are contracted with us. 
but that's never, I mean, they probably give some, but hardly any. And so generally speaking, what happens is they just, that's how they make their money and they make a ton of money, like way more than any insurance company. I mean, they're, they are probably the most profitable thing. And you'll see this as you see mergers in the healthcare space where insurance companies now are saying, well, we want to cut of that. And so they're buying the pharmacy benefit managers or the pharmacy benefit managers like Aetna, they're buying their own, you know, they're buying their own um, PBM or they're merging or whatever, uh, because that's where the money is, right? And the insurance companies know they're getting, they're getting screwed with the, their charges. So there are all these people, those are the people that are actually driving up the, the cost of healthcare, but it all happens because ultimately the consumer, you and I, who walk into the hospital and need some care are not the ones who are, who are bearing the brunt of the financial cost, or we're involved in the process barely, like barely on the outside, right? We get the last bill that comes after all these other stuff had happened, but every part of the system is designed to sort of make some middleman more money. And you can see where the origins of all these things existed. I mean, it made sense for a hospital to contract the PBM because, you know, they're one hospital and they're this, you know, imagine this happened hundred years ago. There weren't large health systems. So you want to get bedpans, you want to get your basic supplies. Well, it makes sense for you to, to join a buying group to get discounted bulk discount prices. That's why like, you know, where those pharmacy schools. And so that's how these things started. But what happened is quickly, you know, hospitals got bigger and they could, and they had these PBMs start buying each other up and through regulatory reasons, they could, they could expand and they have now this giant market share and they could just drive up the cost of things. So I think there that's one of the things so that most people don't, because uh, like even even people who aren't uh, deeply invested in kind of the inefficiencies of how government runs, uh, they they know that like the military industrial complex is this huge lobby. But I think like I don't think the average person realizes how big the pharmaceutical lobby is and how much influence and sway they have and like that I, if i'm not mistaken i think that's actually the biggest like by leaps and bounds of of all of the lobbies like the gun lobby is small the military uh lobby is fairly large but like the pharmaceutical lobbyist that is like that's where the money is and and i don't think like average the average patient or you know just average American understands how massive that is. Yeah. Well, and, and I think actually you're, I think you're right, but I think actually the pharmacy benefit managers are, have much larger lobby. I mean, they, they spend billions of dollars in, in Congress every year um, with campaign contributions and, and even in off election years. Right. So they have, a, they have an inordinate amount of influence and it makes it really difficult to change those, those laws at the national level. It's also why I think it'd be it's much more challenging to hit some sort of nationalized system because there's a lot of people with a vested interest in making a lot of money in this process. Uh, so I, I'm not sure exactly how that happens. You know, you probably have to make those guys whole somehow in order for them to go along with it. Right. Like, you know, Obamacare uh, it happened in what, 2009 or 10. And it, it, but it still use the same architecture we have today. So it just said, we're going to verify that you actually have to still buy insurance products. We, you still have to do things the way we're doing right now. So I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not quite sure. I know why people are, upset, are concerned about socialism coming to medicine and it's slowly coming. I guess you'd say we're halfway there or something. I don't know what you want to, 
but it's not going to be real easy and clean um, because it, there's a lot of, there's a lot of moneyed interests and, and they're, they don't care what party is. Right. I mean, <laughs> so right. they're not, they're not beholden to one or the other party. So if you think that's your, your, your guys, are going to do it. As long as they're getting paid, that's all they care about. It doesn't matter if it's a R or a D next to right. the name. <laughs> that's, so it's the big, the, kind of the big takeaway from this really seems uh, like the disconnect of the patient from the entire process seems, you know, obviously is the biggest, uh, the biggest challenge. And like, okay, so a brief story for several years when I was working in the grain industry, I would get a sinus effect infection about the same time every year. And I knew what it was as soon as it hit, like, okay, I've got a sinus infection. I go to the doctor's office. I tell them I have a sinus infection. I need, you know, I need something, some antibiotics or something for this. And then I have to spend two hours at the doctor's office going through all these tests and doing all this stuff and getting all these checks done and filling out all this paperwork. So that at the end of the two hours, they can tell me, oh, you've got a sinus infection. You need this antibiotic. And it's, oh, gosh, that, it's a major part of the reason why I so actively avoid going to the doctor. Because like uh, for a lot of that stuff, the bureaucratic, all the you know hoops you have to jump through just drive me insane. When I know my body pretty well. I'm not a doctor, but... I've been, you know, I've been living with this thing for 37 years. I kind of know how it operates and, and, uh, you know, that, that stuff like that drives me nuts. Yeah, well, it, it drives everybody nuts. Right. And that's, and those are the things that people have the most trouble with. And what's, what I think people don't understand is that physicians really don't like it either. Right. Like, uh, I think, you know, I recommend you listen to my, uh, episode two, where I talked to Dr. Mott the first time, why she left medicine or not left medicine, why she left health system medicine and she went to the direct primary care because she was getting burnt out doing all the stuff that is not involved in patient care right she gets in trouble with her employer because she doesn't send to specialists enough and to get enough tests she's like well i got trained so i don't have to send people to to get tests or to specialists i can figure most stuff out myself not everything so i do send some people to specialists but she would get penalized because she wouldn't send for more ancillary services within the health system itself to drive up the cost of care, right? And so, um, and with a direct primary care doc, you have someone who is looking for you for cash ways of getting all these things done. I mean, I have my lab work done. It's like 10 bucks. Like most people's copay is not that, is not that low. Uh, you know, get imaging, like you can get a mammogram for like, I don't know, I don't get mammograms, but it'd be like $30 or something, right? And that includes a reading fee. I mean, very inexpensive ways. Stuff can be can be fortunately in our system. You can actually get services and at an inexpensive price. It it is possible, but it does require some work, and so that's why you need to have someone who can navigate that system and hopefully you have a drug primary care doc. Obviously, it doesn't help you when you get to the hospital and things like that. But for most routine care, you can get it way cheaper and at much higher quality. <laughs> I mean, and when I say way cheaper, I mean way cheaper. I think most people would agree that $1,200 a year for that sort of service is pretty cheap. I mean, I don't know how much people spend for their cell phone or for, you know, their gym membership or something like that. But there are, there are things that people do that are, that really are improving the care and they're, and they're not doing all the things that they don't like doing, which is doing the insurance forms and all the, 
stuff. I mean, right now it's estimated that about 50 to 60% of the time physicians spend working is actually not in clinical care. So, you know, they say, oh, there's a huge physician shortage. Well, you know, you cut that in, you cut that time in half and you've, you know, got 50% more physicians than you had before, right? And so there's a lot of, and none of the, no physicians like doing paperwork that I'm aware of. I've not met one so far. And I don't know anybody who likes doing paperwork, especially when it doesn't actually impact clinical care. I mean, most of the things we're doing is not actually improving care. It's just making sure we have the right diagnosis code or or clicking all the demographic information so we get an uptick in our um, in our billing. And that's not, again, it's not improving care. It's, it's, it's something that is causes burnout and makes people want to leave medicine and makes them grumpy, right? You know your body. If you had a doctor who knew you, who saw you every year, you could just call and say, hey, maybe do a video visit or something and say, hey, I've got, you know what time of year it is. It's my science fiction year. And she's like, okay, I'll call on some augmentin or whatever. And you take care of it. But also you also think to yourself, you know, I haven't seen her in a year. I'll head on in. It's going to be, you know, I'll see you tomorrow. You know, I'll see, go in for a half hour, hang out, chat for a little bit, see how what other things are going. Maybe there's something else we're going on with you. You got a mole, something that you that a problem. You know, there's there could potentially be other problems, and or you could just get it called in. Whatever, you know. I mean, you could you you have some control over that, but having you in control changes completely the relationship between you and the, and the physician, and that's always a big problem with medicine right now. Is that there's a there's a huge chasm between the patient and physician, either by time crunch or other administrative fees. There's a computer between you now with a with the electronic health record. Uh, so, but there are, again, there are people who are solving this problem and it, it makes me, I'm encouraged because I think people are going to, as they learn more about it, they get gravi they gravitate towards it and they, they select it because, you know, it's better. Definitely. Well, I think that's a, I think that's a pretty good spot to close on. Thank you very much for joining me. You want to plug your show and anything else you got going on? Yeah, well, I encourage people to listen to The Paradox. That's T-H-E-P-A-R-A-D-O-C-S, theparadox.com, where, you know, we do have a nice discussion about some part aspect of healthcare, whether it's, again, COVID. We talked about that a lot. Uh, so you'd really get a mental perspective. Um, but we also talk about like health records. We talk about brain death. We talk about... Um, uh, we talk about physician suicide, burnout, financial issues with medicine. And, and I really encourage people, if they don't understand medicine, um, it's a good way to sort of we pull the curtain back a little bit. I think I do a pretty good job describing it in, in layman's terms so you can understand sort of what's going on. Obviously, all these issues are very complicated. I'm learning more stuff about medicine than I didn't know. I didn't know anything about PBMs. I didn't know why they cause drug shortages, like, you know, why I wouldn't have the drugs I need, my, why there's supply chain issues. Um, this is before, by the way, there were supply chain issues before COVID. <laughs> so it wasn't, this is not unique to that, but we talk about, we just, we do those discoveries. And so just go to the, go to the website or go to the, the show and look down the, I'm sure you'll find a couple topics that you find interesting. And, um, you know, I don't be so discouraged. It'll be okay. But I think you have to be more active in sort of how you seek out your healthcare too. And that's both not just as a patient, but also as a physician, you know, how you want to practice. And so try and find ways that are to solve solutions to problems you're having within your practice or, you know, with uh, the system in, at large. Well, thank you for coming on. I have definitely enjoyed getting to work with you on your show and, uh, and kind of seeing that side of things. I've learned a lot just in the few weeks that we've been working together. So 
I really appreciate it. I'll definitely try to push everybody in that direction. And maybe we'll have you on again sometime to talk about some more stuff. Because uh, as we talked about this stuff, it kind of gave me other ideas of stuff that I'd like to get a uh, doctor's perspective on. So thanks very much. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Yeah.